Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Exodus chapter 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family. Reuben, Simeon, Levi and Judah. Issachar, Zebulun and Benjamin. Dan and Naphtali. Gad and Asia. The descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. Joseph was already in Egypt. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died, but the Israelites were fruitful and multiplied greatly and became exceedingly numerous so that the land was filled with them. Then a new king, who did not know about Joseph, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become much too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous, and if war breaks out, will join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor, and they built Python and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with hard work in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their hard labor, the Egyptians used them ruthlessly. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shifra and Pua, when you help the Hebrew women in childbirth and observe them on the delivery stall, if it's a boy, kill him. But if it's a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They're vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. So God was kind to the midwives And the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. Paul, thank you very much. Do keep your Bibles open at that reading from Exodus chapter 1, uh, page 58 in the Church Bibles. And let's pray for God's help as we turn to this uh, difficult and also glorious passage. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these ancient words. And we thank you that these words are still uh, relevant for us today as your people Please help us to understand uh, what it means to be part of your people, part of your family, and what it means to live with a a faithful, 
promise-keeping God. We pray this, that you may be glorified through us. In Jesus' name, amen. A few weeks ago, I decided to do some uh, deep cleaning of my wallet. And uh, I got it out and started kind of leafing through various parts of the wallet. And if you've ever done that, you'll know that um, you can find some sort of surprising things in your wallet. I, I found old train tickets and receipts and bits and pieces, stamps and so on. And I discovered that I also had lots of loyalty cards. So I had a loyalty card for co-op and a loyalty card for Sainsbury's and for Tesco and for Costa Coffee and for Cafe Nero and uh, for the golf driving range back in Oxford I used to go to uh, a couple of years ago. Uh, I counted seven different loyalty cards in my wallet. And as, as I was looking at these different cards, I kind of thought, it doesn't quite feel right to have seven different loyalty cards. It, it kind of cheapens the meaning of what it means to be loyal if I um, have seven different loyalty cards. But actually, I think that's increasingly how people today view loyalty. Uh, if it works and if it's convenient and it suits you, then yes, stay loyal. There may be benefits for you. But if a better option comes along or it doesn't seem to quite work out, then shop around, go somewhere else. I guess this kind of loyalty doesn't matter that much when it comes to shopping. Uh, Sainsbury's will cope if I pop down to the co-op now and then for a cheeky pint of milk. Uh, No one minds too much. But it matters a very great deal when it comes to God. The, The book of Exodus is a glorious book. It's a book we'll look at this term. It's a book about rescue and promise keeping and relationship. It's a book about power and victory and judgment. It is a book which points us forward to the gospel in wonderful and amazing ways. It is above all a book about God. And so we've called this series, Behold Your God. For in the story of Exodus, we see God at work. And even though it is an ancient book written thousands of years ago, The God that we read about in Exodus is alive and active today. And so we will behold our living God as we read Exodus. But here's the challenge for us this term. God doesn't reveal himself to us uh, in the book of Exodus, amongst other places in the Bible, uh, so that uh, we can sort of view him like a piece of art on the wall. You know, we sort of walk around and go, oh, that's, that's nice. No, he reveals himself to us because he wants us for himself. He wants us to be a people who single-mindedly, wholeheartedly love him and no one else. You see, Exodus, if you think about the storyline, it begins, if you know it, uh, as we'll see in chapter one, with the people enslaved to Pharaoh in Egypt. But as we sweep through the storyline, we discover that the story ends with the people who have been liberated and freed so that they may worship God. And one of the striking things about uh, Exodus is that the same word in the original that that describes the slavery of God's people to Pharaoh, well, that same word describes God's service and worship and, if you like, slavery to God. God frees his people from Egypt and Pharaoh so that they may serve him and worship him, and be enslaved to him, and to him alone. 
And so my prayer this term as we look at Exodus and as we behold God in his power and glory and love and rescue, so our hearts are increasingly drawn to be single-mindedly, wholeheartedly in love with this God, renewed in our desire to serve him and him alone. But this kind of loyalty is hard. It's hard to love someone completely with all our hearts. We'll see lots of reasons through Exodus why God's people in Exodus struggle to love God this way and to follow him wholeheartedly. And this morning as we come to Exodus 1, we see one particular reason why it is so hard for God's people to be loyal to God. Uh, To put it bluntly, is it really worth serving and being loyal to this God when he allows his people to go through what they go through in Exodus 1? I wonder if you ever struggled with this uh, question. Uh, Perhaps this week looking at the TV screens filled with agony and fear and hopelessness, uh, millions of refugees displaced and homeless. We might wonder, is it really worth being loyal to God when he can let uh, the world be like this? And I assume uh, Christians are caught up in this, if he can let uh, his people be caught up in this as well. Or perhaps closer to home, in our own lives, in our, in, in our experience. It's possible we've been through life and we haven't yet experienced a moment when we feel completely overwhelmed and out of our depth and the future looks completely bleak. But my guess is most of us have experienced some point in life when God feels utterly absent and we can see no sign of him at work in our lives at all. And in those moments, we are bound to wonder, is it really worth being one of God's people? Is it worth being loyal to him? That's our question this morning. And in the complexities and confusion of Exodus 1, I think we find some massively helpful answers. And so as we turn to Exodus 1, first of all, remember God has made promises to his people. He has made promises to his people. I wonder if you ever experienced that moment when you've been reading a good book, a novel, and you've got partly through the story, and then for some reason you've had to put the book down, uh, maybe for a week, or in my case, often a few months, and you come back to the story, and you pick up um, where your bookmark is, and you open the book, and you, you start reading about characters, and you've completely forgotten who they are. You know they are, they are important, but you don't know why. And it's incredibly hard and frustrating to, to try to read forward in the story unless you remember who, who you're reading about. Who are these people? And we have that kind of moment in Exodus chapter one. As we open the book up, we're actually beginning in the middle of a story. And who are the characters that we are reading about? Uh, Verse one. Uh, These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. Who are these people? Why do these people matter? Why does a book begin with this family tree? Well, we need just a moment to catch up with the story so far because the story begins back in Genesis, the previous book. And just one cross-reference this morning, if you flick back in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 12, which is on page 13 in my Bible, in the church Bibles, Genesis 12, 
This is where we, we meet the, um, the forefather of this family, Abram. And this is where we discover why this family is so special and so important. Let's look at Genesis 12, verse 1. The Lord had said to Abram, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. There's a promise God makes. He is promising a land for Abraham and his descendants, this family we meet in Exodus 1. And ever since the very first sin of the Bible back in Genesis 3, when God threw humanity out of the garden, there's been a, a longing, a desire to get back into a land of fruitfulness and abundance and of safety. And God is saying to Abram, I'm going to give you that place, that land. What else? Verse 2, God says, I will make you into a great nation. This family, this, these 70 people are part of God's plan to fill the earth with a people. Verse 2 continues, and I will bless you. God says to this family. This is the opposite of the curse in Genesis 3. God is saying that he's going to bless this family. He's going to undo the suffering and pain and hard toil that is in the world around us. These are great promises. These are world-changing promises. And so let's flick back to Exodus 1, page 58, if you close your Bibles. And as we begin Exodus and we meet this family, we realize that these are the people whom God has given these remarkable promises. And look at verse 7 of Exodus 1. The Israelites were fruitful and multiplied greatly and became exceedingly numerous so that the land was filled with them. There's a population boom that the 70 have become a multitude. And although God is not explicitly mentioned yet, we know from the context that this is his handiwork. He is at work to keep his promise and to grow this family into a nation. And so remember, God has made promises to his people. But what about us sitting here over 3,000 years after this moment in time? I wonder if you ever watched uh, young children perhaps going to a birthday party when it's not their party. Uh, every child responds differently, but often with little children, there's that moment when the cake comes out and the presents are given. And you can see on their face this kind of turmoil because they know that on one hand, they're there to celebrate someone else's birthday, but deep down inside, they wish it was their birthday and they wish that the cake was their cake and the presents were for them. And you can kind of see a little battle going on in their, on, in their faces sometimes. Is that the dynamic going on here in Exodus 1? Are we on the sidelines, kind of watching in as other people get these amazing gifts, these amazing promises? Are we meant to think, oh, oh I wish I was one of them as well, but I'm not? Well, no. Because these ancient promises are our promises as well. They are just as true for Abram and his family as they are for us. You see, if we are a Christian here today, if we're trusting in Jesus, then the Bible tells us that we are part of this family, descendants too of Abraham. 
And so these promises are promises that we can stand on and believe ourselves. Uh, what do they mean for us? Well, God isn't promising to give us a, a little bit of uh, land in the Middle East somewhere, a little patch of, of land. No, the promise of land is a promise that speaks forward to the new creation, that place of ultimate rest and of peace where there is no uh, suffering and toil and hardship. When God talks about a new people, a great nation, we are to think of the church, God's family, that God is at work to grow and to flourish. And one day we will be gathered around the throne in glory with our new family, a great multitude of people. And when God talks about blessing, he means, I think, first and foremost, the opposite of curse, being forgiven, known, loved, redeemed, rescued, ransomed with a glorious future. And so this morning, remember God has made promises to his people. And can I say, no one else can make these kinds of promises. Even Jeremy Corbyn elected the Labour leader yesterday. He's made lots of promises recently about what he's going to do as the new leader, but even Jeremy Corbyn can't make these kinds of promises. Oh, he can make promises about changing welfare and justice and fairness in society. But can he promise to wipe away every tear and to make this world into a renewed world where there's no toil or suffering? Our TV screens are full of adverts promising us happiness and success and fulfillment. And yet we know deep down inside these things won't actually do it for us in the long term. Uh, Flora spread offers to reduce our, our cholesterol and to make our hearts healthy and make us better people. Uh, anti-aging creams promise to uh, reduce our wrinkles. Uh, clothes promise to make us look slimmer and, and more attractive to people. But God is promising to remake the world. Is it worth being loyal to God? Is it worth being one of his people? Well, yes. Remember, God has made promises to his people. They are wonderful, world-changing promises. And even here in Exodus 1, there are signs that he is keeping his promise. The nation is growing tremendously. And it would be lovely, wouldn't it, just to stop at verse 7 and to say, that's the end of the story. God has promises, he's keeping them. You can kind of imagine if Disney wrote the rest of Exodus 1, you can imagine how it would go from verse 8. And Israel threw a massive leaving party for all the Egyptians, and there were hugs and kisses, and then they traveled back to the promised land, and everyone lived happily ever after. God kept his promises in an easy and straightforward way, and everyone loved God. But it doesn't say that, does it? Because there is an almighty twist coming for the people of God. A few months ago, I was beginning to prepare this series, and I was trying to think through how I was going to try to convey this morning the horror of what is about to happen to God's people. But sadly, the events over the last few weeks that we've seen on our TV screens have made my job that much easier. We don't have to imagine what it would have 
felt like or looked like to be an Israelite walking along the shores of the Nile and seeing a little baby boy washed up dead on the beach. We don't have to imagine what it would be like to be a people uh, in anguish and in agony, uh, far from home, uh, trapped, cut off from hope and with no future security, uh, no jobs, no idea of how to move forward in life, utterly bewildered by what was happening to them. We don't have to imagine. We've seen it happening. It's happening now in the world around us. Yes, the context is different, but we get a glimpse into the agony and terror of living in a world like this. I guess it could be easy to be loyal to God when life is good and everything is going well and we see his hand at work. But what about when life is terrible and cruel and scary and hopeless? Is it worth being loyal to God then? Is it worth being one of his people then? Well, our second point is this. Be confident that God will keep his promises. God will keep his promises, even when the world is like this. I guess we know what happens next. A new king comes to power in Egypt, and this new king feels the threat of this growing nation. And so he so commences in Exodus 1 a tremendous struggle. It's a struggle to halt the dramatic population growth. But as we look at this struggle, we know that actually the real struggle isn't so much between Pharaoh and Israel, but rather between Pharaoh and God, who has made a promise to grow this nation into a mighty people. Will Pharaoh be able to stop the baby boom and so stop God from keeping his promises? Well, Round one between Pharaoh and God kicks off in verse 11. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor, and they built Python and Ramesses as store cities for Pharaoh. I'm not quite sure how the logic works at this point in time in Pharaoh's mind. He knows that there's a problem with lots of babies being born, and so his solution is to, to enslave Israel. It doesn't all match straight away, but... Possibly he's thinking, if I get the men to work really hard all day, they'll have no energy when they come home at night for kind of nighttime activities. Uh, That could be one kind of uh, rationale. Or it could be that Pharaoh is thinking, if I can make the hopes of the Israelites so depressing, their future looks so bleak and futile, then they wouldn't want to bring any new life into a world when it's that hard. Maybe that's the rationale. Either way, verse 14 tells us that the enslavement was real and it was terrible. And don't miss this point. Israel will be in Egypt for 430 years. We read that later on in Exodus. Now, I know that they weren't enslaved for all of that time, but they were for a big chunk of that time, for many generations, I think, from the way that the population grows during the slavery And so don't miss the fact that this toil and the hardship and the suffering lasts a long, long, long time. Israelites would have been born into it and died in it. You can imagine being an Israelite perhaps 300 years in 
to the 430-year stint. You know God has made a promise about uh, being a great nation, about a land that's going to flow with milk and honey. But then for the next five years, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, nothing happens. God feels absolutely absent, as if he's forgotten about you completely. I'm not very good at being patient as I wait. I hate waiting on the phone as I ring up to complain about my internet. Uh, I hate waiting for Amazon to deliver the next parcel if they're late. I hate waiting for the doctor to ring back with the results from the test. I hate waiting. And so imagine what it would be like for the Israelites to wait decade after decade after decade enduring the painful toil. Exodus is a picture of what this fallen world is like, a world full of painful toil and hardship. And just as Pharaoh uh, intensifies that toil with his uh, slavery, so there are people and forces today that intensify the toil of living in this broken world. But the world is broken. It is fallen. And we are caught up in this world. Sometimes we have to watch other people toil. Uh, Perhaps it'll be close friends and family as they suffer and experience the brokenness of their world, perhaps with disappointments or depression, bad health, or perhaps on our TV screens, as we've mentioned, seeing millions of people toiling in this broken world, far from home, scared, depressed, cut off from supplies that make their life Uh, comfortable and decent. And when these things happen in the world, when these things happen to God's people, it is so very hard to believe that God is actually at work in this world. It is so hard to believe that one day there will be a moment when God reveals a brand new world recreated, a place where there is no pain and suffering, We've waited so long and nothing's changed. And my guess is we are not the first to feel that way. For I imagine that is how the Israelites felt in Exodus 1. But as is so often the case when life feels bleak and difficult and there's no way forward, there is just a reminder, just a hint that God is not absent, that he has not forgotten and that he is at work. Did you see it? Verse 12. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. In other words, quietly, silently, God is still at work. He is still growing his people. He doesn't provide a running commentary to explain why he's doing what he's doing. He doesn't give us a nice timetable of what to expect next week, next month, next year, the next generation. He uses, dare I say it, evil and suffering, and yet unavoidably, God is at work in Exodus 1. And so be confident that God will keep his promises. And just as God was able to grow a nation, even in this slavery and hardship, so God was at work to grow his people, the church, 
now, even in a world that is broken and difficult. And I do pray that somehow, through this agony of the refugees fleeing a broken country, that there's a way for God to grow his people even then as well, to bring more people in, to be part of his wonderful promises. That's round one. Round two kicks off in verse 15. Pharaoh tries a new tactic, and there's a real escalation in round two. No longer is just slavery and toil. Now, verse 16, it's genocide. Kill the baby boys, says Pharaoh. And this is a direct threat to God's people and God's promises. You see, if you can kill the boys, you will eventually kill a nation, and God's promises will die with them. There'll be some here today who, uh, for whatever reason, haven't come face to face with the reality of death. Maybe we've had brilliant health own, uh, in our lives. Maybe our friends and family have had very healthy lives. Maybe our f- friends haven't had to go that, uh, through death. But my guess is most of us here today, for whatever reason, have come to a moment when we have come face to face with the reality of death. And we understand how dreadful it is, how final it is, how much it brings a separation in the world. And that is the reality facing Israel. Death at her doorstep. And in my experience of uh, trying to help people and encourage people, death is often the time when we find it hardest to believe that God will keep his promises. And imagine how difficult it would have been for the Israelites as their babies are killed to wonder if God really is at work in the world. And then come along these two midwives, Shipra and Pua. And I think in a difficult chapter, they stand as great examples of people who were confident that God would keep his promises. I think it's pretty clear in the story that they must have lied to Pharaoh with their story about how the Hebrew woman gave birth so quickly to the children. I think so because uh, they are commended for their bravery. And why would they have to be brave if they didn't lie? No, I think what's happening here is that the, the midwives knew about a promise God had made to grow Israel into a great nation. They knew God's plans and purposes for the world, and they wanted to be in step with those plans. That's how they expressed their fear and honor of God. And so rather than killing the boys, they let the boys live. And they stood up to Pharaoh, and they made up a story. They are, I think, an example of people who believe that God's promises will come to pass. They are confident in God's purposes. I just need to acknowledge uh, a complexity about these midwives. Some of you may be thinking, okay, so are we being told that it's okay to lie when it suits us in this life? Is that kind of the point of what's going on here? Well, that's not the main point by any means. Let's not miss the main point of what's going on as God keeps his promises. But I think for what it's worth, I know that lots of ink has been spilled over this, but for what it's worth, how I understand it, is that the context changes everything. The context here means that their lie saves lives. 
you know, if they had been honest about the fact that they just didn't want to kill the babies, I can imagine they would have been killed themselves. And if they had been killed, then other midwives would come along who didn't fear God and they would have killed the babies and so people die. But to lie means to save lives. And in that context, it seems that God commends them for their actions. Verse 20. So God was kind to the midwives. Look, I guess it's similar in some ways to that scenario that we know of in the Second World War. Nazi Germany. There's a knock on the door. Are there any Jews in the attic? And you say, no, knowing that there are. You lie, but you lie to save life. It's a complicated scenario. It's what it's like living in a fallen world. But these midwives fear God and they are commended for it. But notice also that round two isn't going well for Pharaoh. Verse 20 continues. And the people increased and became even more numerous. Quietly, hiddenly, God is at work to keep his promise to his people. And so in the midst of the messiness and toil and agony of Exodus 1, we should be confident that God will keep his promises. There is, of course, one final round. Verse 22, there's a further escalation right at the end of Exodus 1. This time, Pharaoh brings all of the Egyptians in to the attempted plan to kill the boys. It's another escalation. And the chapter ends on a cliffhanger. What will happen to the people of Israel when a whole nation is against them? We don't know yet. Uh, Come back next week if you'd like to find out what happens next. But we've seen enough, haven't we, in chapter one to see a pattern. You know the pattern? Opposition to God's people and God's promises. It looks scary and overwhelming, but God finds a way to keep his promise. Again, further opposition, but God keeps his promise. This third time, 22, opposition. But now we're starting to think, God is gonna keep his promise. How? We find out next week. But as we come to a close this week, uh, Exodus 1 doesn't gloss over the realities of living in a fallen world. It confronts us with the pain, the confusion, the, the, the agony that comes from trying to make sense of a world that's so fallen and so broken. And yet Exodus 1 shows us that even in this world, God is at work. And it won't always be easy as his people to cling on to his promises. But Exodus 1 would say to us, don't doubt that he will bring about his plans and so be loyal to him. Who else, after all, can fix this broken world? Of course, centuries later, there was another king who oppressed God's people. There was another king who killed the baby boys But of course, just like Pharaoh, this other king, centuries later, failed to stop God's plans and purposes. For this other baby boy lived, and he grew up to be the savior of the world. It's the same God with the same plan and the same promises, and he always keeps his promises. He always has, and he always will. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you that you are not absent or distant from a world that is full of agony and toil and torment. And we thank you that even though we don't always know what is best for this world, we thank you that you have a plan that you have announced consistently throughout history, a plan that is just right to undo the curse of this world, to bring about hope and joy and peace and healing and wholeness. Father, we thank you that uh, in your people, the church, you have made that plan known, that you are at work to bring about, ultimately, a new creation where there'll be no tears and no pain and no toil. Father, please keep us as people who are utterly convinced that you are good and will keep your promises. Help us to be loyal to you in the face of difficult times. And Father, we pray that through the agony of this broken world, there'll be many more people who enter into your people and so receive the blessings of your promise. In Jesus' name, amen.